You don't have to. Well, I've been in this job living here in Washington. Uh, the local basketball team, the Washington Wizards, has been um, uninspiring to say the least. So I thought maybe this summer I would try out. And um, clearly now, having broken my ankle playing basketball last week, that's not going to happen. But it's so good to be with you. I missed you last week. And thanks for uh, being so kind and welcoming my dad. And let me pray for us now. And we're going to be in the book of James, uh, James chapter 4. It's on page 1013 in your pew Bible. And let me pray for us now as we turn to God's Word. Lord, we, Jesus, I, I picture, I just picture you in heaven with your younger brother, James, understanding things about this man that only you do. And perhaps, Jesus, you're quite proud of your younger brother who became not just your brother, but your son in the faith. And Jesus, I pray now that you would honor your younger brother, James, by speaking once again through him to your church. And you take his words and you'd use them to build up the false church Anglican and everyone else who may hear. We pray this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Amen. So James 4, starting at verse 13. Um, in, in the section in James will be in this week and next, which stretches from James 4, verse 13, into James chapter 5, verse 6. In this section, James is he's really concerned with a single or, or a common disease. And I'll tell you what this is in a moment. But he, he goes about addressing this disease by noting two of its symptoms. And so one symptom that, that surfaces of this disease in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4 is what, what you might call presumptuous planning. The symptom is a type of hubris or arrogance about who controls the future. And you can see this. If you just look at verse 13, you, you have people that are planning out their lives as though they're the design architects and the foremen rather than hired workers. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's the first symptom, presumptuous planning. But in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James, James highlights or, or another symptom surfaces, and it, it's not so much to do with planning as it is with prospering. It has to do with how we orient towards wealth and possessions. So he says, verse 1, he speaks of the rich who are essentially doing exactly what Jesus lamented in the parable that John Frederick read for us. They're building bigger barns. They're swimming in luxury and decadence. And they're doing so at the expense of their employees. And worst all, they're doing all this with no regard that they're living in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's the end of verse 3 in chapter 5. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. 
which you kept back from, by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. Symptom two, ego-centered prosperity. So two symptoms, presumptuous planning, ego-centered prosperity. And now what James, I think, wants us to see or help us see is that underlying these two things is a single and a common disease. And we might call it BPSG, big people, small God disease. This is when, in our estimation, people are really big and God is really small. I want you to notice the overinflated view of the self in these verses. So people are not, in verse 14, a mist that appears for a little while, but they're acting as those who command and control destiny. People do not say about their plans in verse 15, if the Lord wills, but instead they essentially say, if I will, my will be done. And then people are not humbly investing in the kingdom of God in the last days, but verse 3 of chapter 5, they are laying up treasures. Essentially, they're building their earthly kingdom in luxury and self-indulgence. Big people, small God. And when this happens, when we lose the gravitas of God, it's a bit like what would happen if we would suddenly lose the benefit of gravity, right? You haven't thought about gravity today, but it's been at work. It's keeping you on the ground, keeping the building on the ground, keeping cars in their place. Gravity is what orders us. It keeps us grounded. Spiritually, when we lose the gravity of God, when He becomes a tiny little guy out there, when we lose the gravitas of God, we lose our grounding, just like an astronaut going into space. And our egos and the way we think about the future, they just float out of place. And it's not just our thinking and our planning that lose perspective or their grounding. It's our hearts. Because when, when God is small and we are big, then ultimately our hopes and our dreams rest on our shoulders. And that is an uncomfortable burden if you are at all honest about your level to control things. So this week and next, we're going to watch James address this issue and its symptoms. We're going to look at the cure he offers. And the cure is very simple. The cure for big people, small God disease is a strong dose of big God theology. It's staring at the greatness and the grandeur of God. So what James will do next week when we look at James 5, verse 1 through 6, is he's going to take this aspect of God's greatness, that he is the final judge, and his day of judgment is fast approaching, and he's going to situate that over and against our bank accounts and how we go about treating people in our pursuit of our careers and prosperity. How does the bigness of God's final judgment shape the way we think about how we judge others, and how we prosper. This week, however, focusing on chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James is going to set the bigness of God's providence over our approach to human plans. God's providence, this is His purposeful, 
power to bring about His purposes and plans, how does that impact our planning? That's the real question we have to grapple with today. We're going to look at this. We're going to examine this in two parts. And this is just how James guides us along in this passage. First, part one, we're going to examine the errors of presumptuous planning. What are they? And then second, we're going to consider three steps for how we might plan in light of God's providence. So the errors of presumptuous planning, the steps for planning in light of providence. So first, the the errors of presumptuous planning. Verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Who's James talking to? What seems he has in mind, Christian, a Christian business person um, planning the expansion of his or her company, engaged in budgeting and planning for the year ahead. Now, it's not wrong to plan. I mean, you just couldn't get, especially in our world today, you couldn't get much done if you didn't keep a calendar. You need to keep a calendar in order to be respectful to your coworkers. Teachers, you have to plan the year. Business persons, you have to budget and project and plan. If you're a parent, you needed to plan the summer if you're going to do a vacation or kids are going to go to camp. If you're a minister or you work at a church, you plan. You plan retreats. You plan meetings. You plan sermon series. In the Bible, Paul plans missionary journeys as best as he can. In his letter to Romans, at the end, it's clear he has a plan. I'm getting to Spain by way of Jerusalem and then Rome. That's my plan. So planning in and of itself is not bad. What James is concerned about is presumptuous planning. We'll see what this is. Hear how the four verbs ring with overconfidence in verse 13. Just, Just hear these. We will go. We will work. We will do business. We will make a profit. This is the we will of big people thinking. And James adds for color in verse 16, in case you wonder the motives, he says, you boast in your arrogance. Now, James deals with this, this error of presumptuous planning, by highlighting at least four errors. We can see at least four errors of it in this passage. And as as I point these out, I want you to notice how they're effectively right-sizing the equation. They bring people back down to earth and lift God up on the throne. So, four errors. Error one. Presumptuous planning, it overlooks ignorance. It overlooks our ignorance. So verse 14, yet you do not know, there's ignorance, you don't know, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Sounds like Jesus, right? You just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. The truth is that none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think this fact alone ought to work to keep us somewhat more lowly and humble when we think about our plans. The second error is <clears throat> these planners overlook their frailty. Continuing verse 14, what is your life, James asks, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes tomorrow. There's a nice illustration or an analogy for what a human being is, a mist, not a statue in granite, Missed. You know, I worked at uh, I worked at the beach one summer, 
And I had to get out really early, like 7 a.m. And it wasn't uncommon to go onto the beach and be met by a mist, a fog, right? And now you'd come to learn that you'd be quite mistaken if you thought this meant it was going to be a cloudy day. Give this sun an hour and a half. Gone. The mist is gone. A couple hours into the day, all the families are out, beautiful blue sky. You don't even remember that there was a mist. James is saying to these overconfident planners who think the world rests on their shoulders that they control tomorrow, he's saying, you are a mist. Gone. So that's the second thing presumptuous planning overlooks is our incredible frailty. Third, these planners overlook their dependence. Verse 15, instead, instead of saying, I will, we will, we will, we will, instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And here we come to the heart of the matter. If if ignorance and and frailty highlight human weakness and smallness, speaking of our dependence on God's will begins to not only show our smallness and dependence, but lift our eyes up to someone who is not ignorant and is not frail, especially when it comes to the Future. So James now, in turning to the bigness of God, when he speaks of our dependence on God's will, he's really introducing a category theologians might call providence. Now, providence is not just God's power. Like people talk about that God is sovereign. That means he has total power to do whatever he wills right now. He holds your life in his hands. That's his sovereignty. It's his power. But providence moves into thinking about how God exercises his power purposefully according to a plan. So he doesn't just show up with his power to stop our bad plans. But in his providence, he is always ordering and laying out his plans. Providence is purposeful power that God uses to bring about his plans. And I want you to see how we have both these types of power in this passage. So verse 15, just this is a little, little nugget here. Notice this with me. The sovereign power of God, we see it when Paul says, excuse me, James says in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live. That's his sovereignty. He's your state of being. We will be alive. I'm alive right now because he wills. But then he stresses his providence of ordering future doing when he says also, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. You see it there? We will live and do this or that. One is, a, a, is an idea of being and the other is an idea of doing. So he's saying, the Lord's going to order whatever happens in your business next year. That's what James is saying. We're dependent on that. I want you to hear um, how this beautiful idea of God's providence, his purposeful ordering and providing according to his plan for things, I want you to hear it, how, it, how it unfolds in a psalm, Psalm 104, that, that catches us up in this beautiful image of nature and humanity. This is beautiful. I'll just read this for you. Just, just hear for God providing for grass and cattle and human beings here. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. The, the psalmists have big God theology, by the way. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You make springs gush in the valley. They give drink to every beast of the field. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. And these all 
look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. James would just say, if the Lord wills, a blade of grass will make it to tomorrow. If the Lord wills. And doesn't Jesus say that God is in control of even a sparrow and a lily? That's the third error. We overlook our utter dependence. Fourth, the fourth error these planners make could be called entitlement. When we forget that we come from God and we depend on God, we start to think we belong to ourselves and exist for ourselves. This is why James brings up boasting and arrogance in verse 16. A little word translated arrogance, it comes up one other time in the New Testament. It's in 1 John 2 verse 16, and it's referred to in that, that section as the pride of life. We have an entitlement. I own me. Now, in a culture like the one we live in that has no unified vision of God, people will speak of human rights as a basis for moral laws and behavior. It's really all we have to appeal to at the end of the day. I mean, in our Constitution and in people's reasoning, you see some lingering ideas of God. But really, when it comes down to it, what you'll hear in moral reasoning is human rights. And this is, in some ways, is a good thing. But I want to speak to Christians right now. This is just for for Christians. I want you to be very careful about how you think about human rights. In as much as it impacts how you relate to God. We do not have rights when we come before God. We have needs. We do not stand before God and say, you owe me. Because I created you and I have my prayers and you owe me. I have rights. We have absolutely nothing to appeal to before God save His mercy and His grace. Don't bring your rights before God. Bring your humility. We don't own the title to our lives the way you own the title to your car or the deed to our lives the way you own the deed to your house. God does. So, so this is all by way of just shrinking the overinflated self, putting some gravity, some gravitas of the providence of God on top of the planner, right? This is big people, small God disease when it causes presumptuous planning. And James right-sizes us by reminding us of our ignorance, our frailty, our dependence. And then he lifts our eyes to the towering providence of God and reminds us that he, he has the title to our lives in his glove box. And praise God, he's good. Now, having said all that, you know, you know, about noon yesterday, I was planning on pivoting from this to chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. So nailing us on planning and then nailing us on prosperity. And I just thought, you know what would be helpful is if we tried to unpack the positive side of this. So, okay, James, this is what we'll do in the second half of the sermon. Okay, fair enough. I'm small. God is big. And when I plan, I need to say, if the Lord wills, I will live to the end of this sermon and do this or that this afternoon. Okay. Now, how in the world do we practically go about planning having said that? That's the question that I want to take up with the second half of our sermon. This is part two. How do we plan in light of God's providence? 
Because teachings like God's sovereignty and his providence, they're never used in the Bible as a cop-out. It doesn't mean we can blame our, blame our sins on God, and it doesn't mean we don't make any plans. You've got to hold all this intention. So here's three steps to planning in light of God's providence, drawing from James' words and some larger areas in Scripture. So three ways to plan in light of providence. Number one, plan in light of God's plan of redemption. Plan in light of God's plan of redemption. You know, God has a plan, and we might assume it's the most important thing to adjust our plans according to. It's like you're showing up to a work site, and there's a master architect who's building the whole thing, and you're showing up to build a little room. You might want to know the bigger project, right, before you make your plans. What's God's bigger plan? It's a plan of redemption. Now, we know it's a plan of redemption. We can see this in James because of his use of the word save. He uses the word five times. He says things like this, verse, chapter 1, verse 21, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Save your souls. Then in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Okay, so whatever else is going on in the world right now, souls are headed to death. Do you believe that? This is basic Christianity. And God's plan is to, is to stop that. It's to save souls from death. This is what the Bible calls redemption. And it all centers around His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, verse 7 through 10. I'm going to read this. And I want you to hear all this language of God's will and His purposes and His plan. Paul says, In Jesus Christ we have redemption. Right? There's the plan of redemption. How? Through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. So when you plan, the first question to ask is, what is God doing right now in the world he is unfolding a plan of redemption that centers around His Son. So how does this work practically if you're planning out your year or planning a career or planning a marriage or planning to pray that God would give you children? It means I think you should ask, in my plans, whose kingdom is being built? You see, plans assume goals. You don't plan to do nothing. I mean, some people joke like that, but think about it sometime. Your plan is built based on a goal you have. So if you were to drill, if you were to go way underneath your plans for your, your business, for the year ahead, for your career, for your family, for, for taking the LSAT to get into law school, if you were to go underneath these plans all the way down and try to find the master blueprint, would you find that you're architecturally building your kingdom or God's? That's the question to ask. Are you working and building to make yourself look great and big or Jesus look great? So if you're soon to graduate from college or you just did and you're planning a career path, let me give you an example of how this works. Here's some good questions you could, you could do to orient your plans to God's redemptive plans. Here's questions to ask. How might this career path put me in a good place to follow Jesus Christ? Some jobs make it hard to follow Jesus. Others maybe make it better for you. If it proves lucrative, this job I want, 
if I make a lot of money, do I have the character to steward large portions of money? Or could that money come to rule me? Sometimes I wonder if someone like Michael Jackson could be made alive right now and go back to when he was born, and you'd ask him, is it wise for you to choose fame? Like, like if you could choose right now, do you think it would be better not to be famous, right? So you need to think, right? If I make it big, Jesus is so hard on about how dangerous money is for my heart, could I handle that? Question, how would this career work with being actively involved in a local church? Would this career give me opportunities to meet people that don't know Jesus? Maybe that, would this career give me opportunities to travel internationally to get to know people in a different country who don't know Jesus? You see, these types of questions, what they do is they realign our plans to accord with the bigger plan that's unfolding, God's plan of redemption. And you just don't want to build your life not in accord with God's plan of redemption. It will be like doing an addition on your house that doesn't at all work with the house. And you know structurally it just it won't last. And now this leads to the second way we plan in light of God's providence. We plan in light of His plan of redemption, and now we plan in light of His plan of sanctification. Sanctification is related to redemption, but it drills a little deeper into you. In 1 Thessalonians, this is Paul's first letter, Paul says to some of the earliest Christians, and I love this, this is 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. If you're a person who doesn't know God's will for your life, let me just tell you. Here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's plan for you may involve a lot of things. Living in places, doing jobs, having a family, traveling, suffering and rejoicing but it never will involve less than sanctification. That, do you know what that means? Sanctification means God making you holy. It means God separating you unto himself so you are his. It means God separating you from the world so you're not defiled by it. So if we sat down, you and me, if we sat down and looked at your calendar or your planner, would we see plans for your sanctification? Do you plan for holiness this year or this week? Would we read things like Monday morning, 7 a.m., plan, text my accountability partner, ask him to pray for me for the day. 8 a.m., plan, pray with my spouse before we leave for the day. Noon, plan, avoid slipping into gossip. So don't go into that certain part of the workplace where I just can't help but gossip. Do you plan to become holy. I mean, if you're young and you want a mission for your life, take the next year, hand a paper into your college person and say, I don't know what I'm going to do for a job, but I'm going to be holy. What do you think about that? What if the business person, in verse 13, instead of spouting off with hubris, hubris said something like this, if the Lord wills, this year I am not going to let money be my master. If my wages exceed such and such, I have a plan to give every penny of that amount away. I'm going to give it to this ministry to the poor, and I've identified two churches that are really needy, and I'm going to give it to these churches. And I'm so excited, so I'm working twice as hard because I have a plan. And the plan is because I'm scared of money ruling my soul. 
So we plan for sanctification. Third, how do we plan in light of God's providence? Plan in light of the better wisdom of God. So we plan according to his redemption, his sanctification. Now, what does this mean? We plan in light of his better wisdom. This means we we trust that God's plan is always under control and it's always wise, even when our own plans seem to be crumbling or we, we have no idea what to do next. You see, often God reveals his plan to us and there's times he hides it. So the disciples in Acts 1, they ask Jesus, His plan. When's your plan? What time will you restore the fortunes of the kingdom of Israel? It would be helpful to know. He says, chapter 1, verse 7 of Acts, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Friends, sometimes God determines that it is not for you or me to know the time or the season or the why or how of his plan. Sometimes God's plan is counterintuitive. What this means is it unfolds in such a way that we never would predict, nor could we understand in the moment. Do you know the prime example of this? The cross. Worst plan ever when Jesus is being crucified. Every disciple just leaves. This is a huge cosmic failure, except that it's strategically God's perfect plan to uphold justice and mercy at the same time. Peter says this same thing in Acts chapter 2 in his first sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, this Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Try to hold that together in your head. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God sovereignly ordained that Jesus would be killed, and it's a total sin that you're killing him. Guys, we're little ants trying to relate to God. we got to hold these mysteries in place. But God's never off his plan. He doesn't get nervous. This is not the God you see in the Bible. So often... Remember, this is the third point. We, we plan according to his better wisdom. He, w- he won't tell you what he's doing sometimes. And other times, something's happening in your life, and it, makes, it looks like a failure. And it's strategic. So sometimes his plans are counterintuitive. But always, for those who love Christ, what he does in your life is good. This is what Paul says, right, in Romans Romans 8, 28, that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are, called, who are called according to his purpose. Paul goes on to talk about how God is transforming us to be sons and daughters who look like Jesus. So in Christ, God has a plan for you in which all the tiny details lead to you being very much okay and very happy forever. Even if on the path is a light stopover called martyrdom. Do you think it was a failure that Stephen was martyred in Acts 7? Was that a tragedy? Should that not have happened? The guy's been a deacon for like a day. And he's stoned to death. Do you think he's sitting in heaven saying, boy, I wish I would have gotten to retirement, Jesus. He has the honor of existing forever with the glorious story of saying, I shed blood for the lamb that shed his blood for me. And I bore witness. I wouldn't change that for the world. 
This is why Christians, we recognize our ignorance in our own plans. We, we recognize our frailty. We don't know what's best. We can't bring about the future. But because we see the providence of God, we come to love verses like this in Proverbs. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Friends, this isn't just a proper strategy to get us following God. It's therapy in the technical Greek sense of the word so that you're not always so anxious. Submit your plans to the providence of God. He will bring about what needs to come about for redemption, for your sanctification, and for your eternal joy. I want to conclude with a story, if I may. It's a personal story. You know, I, just let me share this. Um, it has to do with my last semester in college. And I bumped, on, I bumped into this story this weekend because I actually broke my ankle in the exact same way at the end of college. And I was trying to figure out how long it took to heal then. So I was like, I think maybe I have something about that in a journal. So I was going back and reading. Um, and, you know, when you're in college, you don't pay attention to stuff like this really. But what shocked me was I, this dropped me into a portion of my, my last semester in college where I was... I was really wrestling with what God's plan was for my life. You know, maybe you can relate to that in different seasons. And it can be a little egocentric, but it's okay sometimes to say, Lord, what's your plan for me? And this can happen at, at crucial moments like the end of college. And I was new to following Jesus wholeheartedly. And I desperately wanted to know, well, what do you want me to do? And I don't know how to know what you want me to do. And I was being discipled at the time by two Korean missionaries. They were, they were from Seoul, Korea, doing missions in Philadelphia, Harry and Sunjin. And they said to me, Sam, I was telling them about this. They said, we're going to do a 40-day Bible study. Every day we're going to meet. And when we meet, we're going to walk you through portions of the Bible that focus on God's plan and God's way of guiding people into that plan. And we're just going to pray that he guides you along. And so I'm reading these entries. I was making an entry every single day. And then I come to this break. And it was like, missed three days because I tore ligaments and broke my ankle. And then I kept reading. And I realized that during this season of discernment, I broke my ankle, my car broke down, I got strep throat, and then a job that I thought was in the bag fell through. And I'm, and I'm reading this, and, I, and I'm looking at my younger self and realize that the person's just coming apart. And, and, I, and I, I read it now, and I look back, and I think, oh my goodness, the Lord was weakening me, introducing me to ignorance and frailty and dependence, and he, he put me in a position where I could say yes to a totally unexpected career path for me at the end of college, which was a job offer that came out of nowhere to work for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Here's a job offer to raise your salary, okay? Not to make any money. And I never in a million years would have said yes to that in March. But by May, I was a dead man. And, and I'm reading my journal. It's like, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want. And I read it different. I said, oh my goodness. You are, you are totally getting me in line with your plan. For me, it's, it's different for all of us, but, but you were, your plan was being worked out in me. Now, I can't explain to you the step-by-step -step way God leads you or leads us into his plans. And he does so in millions of different ways. But I can say that, the, that living into God's plans requires that we do recognize our frailty 
the temporality of our lives. We admit our ignorance and we admit our dependence upon God. But that's not all we do. We lift our eyes up to the towering reality of God's providence. He speaks over your life. I will fulfill my plans for you. So Paul opens Philippians. I will bring to completion the work that I began in you. That's what the Lord says over His people. And in this posture, we pray, we study Scripture, we listen, and we listen to God, and we listen to godly people. But friend, you can trust that God in His timing and His mysterious way will work out His plan in your life. And that through the ups and downs, through the mysteries of life and death, your life will prove in Christ to have been a journey that all along was heading towards that celestial city even to the arms of the Father Himself. And when we're standing there and we can finally look back and see the map in one fell swoop, we will say, as Paul does, oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God, above all else, we say with James, if the Lord wills, we will live, and as a church, we will serve you. And by whatever means necessary, we ask that you use the most gentle means possible, but by whatever means necessary, you'd keep this church on your plan. Amen.